0: a mission is a movement it's a thing it's a dream a powerful display of love across a foreign sea or contained within a ring my neighbor calls for hope for help for life for something to believe because it cannot seem to be more than it seems to be a reaching out a helping hand a grace-filled word a heart to men a mission is a movement to live among the poor, to be a better neighbor and a steward of my stuff. For every person that I see, two or five in poverty chained to the ground. Like the girls in Thailand and Greece and even in our own streets, I'm filled with disgust at institutional lust and cry out for mercy and freedom for those who have been taken. A mission is a movement to care for the sick and the wounded, to show them what Christ is about. For all of my neighbors who have been told they have AIDS, I'm called to be with them and stand in their grief. And for the 5% of people I see that live with HIV, and I know it's higher than that, the situation is more dire than that. A mission is a movement. To know the spirit and the God who is sending me out. To be more creative. To speak peace in places of war. Choosing forgiveness over radical blame. Transform through reconciliation which spiraled before into conflict and chaos and lives that were mourned. A mission is a movement. A mandate to act, not passively pass, but bring up my skills and creator who gave them. A mission is a movement of ordinary people empowered by God's spirit doing what Jesus did, together, wherever they are. A mission is a movement.
1: Well, this weekend, it's a privilege for us to welcome Mark Turnage as we continue our mission series. Um, I don't know about you, but I I like hanging around people who are really smart, because sometimes it makes you feel a little smarter. Um, And I had the opportunity to do that. Uh, earlier this year on a study tour in Israel. Uh, Our guide and the director of the Center for Holy Land Studies is Mark Turnage. And after spending a week with Mark, uh, we just felt like, Mark, you've got to come and just spend some time with us here at National Community Church. And so mark your calendar because Monday night um, you're going to get some high octane teaching. A18 educate um, and uh, plan on being a part of that event uh, on Monday night. Uh, but Mark, uh, his PhD work is in ancient Judaism and the origins of Christianity. We thought to ourselves, um, what better person to come and speak on, on Acts 1:8 and our missions movement? By the way. Uh, Pastor Dave and Pastor Heather, who will be uh, our local leaders uh, leading our uh, Israel tour next year. Um, But Mark will be leading that tour as well. We are not going to go to Israel and not have Mark lead it. Now, I've got to tell you, I'm used to his Indiana Jones hat. So it's a little kind of strange tonight coming in. He's got the suit coat and and uh, looking looking pretty good. Um, but uh, I-, I want you to give a huge NCC welcome to Mark Turnage as he comes and shares with us this weekend. Thanks.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's great being with you all. I apologize up front. I got in yesterday. Uh, from Israel, and uh, I came home sick. So if I'm coughing a little bit and so forth, uh, bear with me. Uh, It was a privilege for me to uh, travel with Mark and the other pastors uh, here from NCC. You know, some groups you take, and um, it's uh, nice traveling with you, but uh, we'll see you sometime. (laughs) (laughs) Other people you take, and you enjoy it, and not only do you feel like you're able to connect with them, but you also feel like uh, these are people that enriched you. And that's exactly what I felt in traveling with them. And so it's, it's a nice uh, to be back here. Um, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts 1-8. And that's going to be kind of our springboard for tonight. And then we're going to, to move around a little bit. In Acts 1.8 Jesus says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. One of the things that strikes me, Jesus passionately cared that his followers got it right. And oftentimes when we think about mission, we Reduce mission to the last week and hours of Jesus' life, but we forget that for three and a half years, he invested a message into his followers. And one of the things that I want to do tonight is to explore that message. Because when Jesus in Luke 19, he's coming into Jerusalem, he's traveling there for the Passover, knowing that it's going to be his last Uh, week and hours on earth, he comes and he sees a city that is torn apart with racial strife. He sees a city that is torn apart with economic class warfare. He sees a city that is torn apart with um, political problems. Does that sound familiar? And it breaks his heart. And I'm always struck by what he says. He says as he's weeping, would that you had known the things that make for peace. He doesn't say, would you have known the thing. Jesus abhorred the cult of personality. Frequently he even eschewed when people came to him seeking to make him something great. But what were these things? The one thing that I would challenge us with is that he is far more concerned in the rejection of his message even over his person. Because he knew that if Jerusalem of his day had recognized his message and had embraced it, the outcome would be very different. And as you probably know, about 40 years later, Jerusalem burned as a result of these internal ethnic problems as a problem between the Jews of Judea and the Roman authorities. And of course in 70, in August of 70 AD, Jerusalem's in ash and the temple of Jerusalem also was burnt to the ground. And the outcome may have been different had they listened to the message of Jesus. So what I want to do is I'm going to ask you to do something a moment. I want you to think and identify if someone were asking you, what are the three pillars of your faith? Put them in in your mind. What are the three essential practices that for you define your faith? And I want you to put them in order one through three, with one being the most important, and keep them there, okay? Because what I want to talk to you about tonight is the three pillars of Jesus' faith. Now, to understand that, we need to understand that there was a revolution of thought that had gone on in the years preceding Jesus. Now, I felt like I could do this, and I'm going to throw some, some text up on the screen here. Um, given the fact that I'm speaking at a, at, a, at a church of a guy who wrote a book dealing with honey, I think I can deal with that extra biblical text a little bit. I'm not saying that we should include them in our canon. I'm just simply saying that they help us understand the world of Jesus. Um, he was a person of his time who was shaped by the developing thoughts of his world, just as you and I are. And there was a revolution of thought that had transpired uh, in the first century, and it's going to pin itself on two biblical verses. The first one is Genesis one twenty-seven, And Genesis one twenty-seven basically states what? In the image of God created he him. In other words, human beings are created in God's image. Now this is going to be fundamental, especially for Jesus. Because every human being not only is made in God's image, but therefore they have infinite worth. Now one thing I'd just throw out there. How would we do life differently if we truly believe that every person on the face of this planet was imprinted with the image of God? How would we handle special needs people differently? How would we do prison reform differently? If we really believe that every person, even though they may be tied up in their sin, they still bear the image of God. The second passage that we're going to look at a bit more is uh, Leviticus 19.18. Of course, this normally is love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, But in the first century... Judaism had come to read this as, love your neighbor who is like yourself. In other words, you and I are more alike than either of us is like God. So the point that's going to be extrapolated from this is, in the way that I respond to you, who is like myself, God will respond to me. So for example, we read in a work, Called the Book of Ben Sira. It was written by a man by the name of Jesus Ben Sira around the uh, beginning of the second century BC. And he's going to say this Forgive your neighbor the wrong he has done, and then your sins will be pardoned when you pray. Does anyone harbor anger against another and expect healing from the Lord? If one has no mercy toward another like himself, can he then seek pardon for his own sins? If a mere mortal harbors wrath, Who will make an atoning sacrifice for his sins? Remember the commandments and do not be angry with your neighbor. Remember the covenant of the Most High and overlook faults. Now, Jesus at the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 is going to say something to this effect If you then forgive men when they sin against you, then what? You will be forgiven. He says it a different way in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Notice the tenses. They've shown mercy, and in the future they will receive mercy. We hear in uh, another passage, (laughs) excuse me, uh, Rabbi Hanina said, A mighty oath from Mount Sinai. If you hate your neighbor whose deeds are wicked like your own, I, the Lord, will punish you as your judge. But if you love your neighbor whose deeds are good like your own, I, the Lord, will be faithful to have mercy on you. In other words, look, let's be honest. We all have our good days. We all have our bad days. Now, please understand, we, we hear this and we go, okay, so what's so new and revolutionary about this? Have you ever tried to really pray the Psalms? Sometimes it's kind of hard because the psalmist has a very black and white view of the world, right? God saved me because I'm righteous and punish everyone else because they're wicked and they can be the people in my family, people who disagree with me, right? That's kind of the world, the way the psalmist looks at it. But all of a sudden something's happening and people are starting to realize that, look, if I've got my righteous days and I've got my not-so-righteous days, then maybe other people do as well. And the conclusion that Jesus and his contemporaries are going to draw from this is that between God stands you. And the way in which I'm going to relate to you, God is going to reciprocate towards me. Now think about this a moment. In Matthew 5, Jesus is talking And he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, now there's only one altar that you can offer your gift at in the first century, and that's in Jerusalem in the temple. But there you remember that someone has something against you. What do you do? You go back, you reconcile with that person, and then you come back and offer your gift. Now, let's hear this a minute like his listeners heard this. You're a Jew that's traveled from Rome for one of the pilgrim festivals. All of a sudden, you show up in the temple, and there you're getting ready to do your thing. You've saved up money, and you remember that someone back home has something against you. That hurts. You've now got to go back and solve that problem before you try and take care of this It's interesting that the language he uses comes straight out of what happens every year in the Jewish calendar. You have the Jewish New Year of Rosh Hashanah, and then 10 days later you have the highest holy day, the, the fast of Yom Kippur. And in those 10 days, you're to go to your family, friends, relatives, neighbors, whomever. And if this isn't right, you've got to make it right, even if it means making restitution so that when it comes time to fast, this can be right. And one of the things that I think that we see, and we see this in Matthew 5 also, Jesus is going to make a completely radical jump here. Because he's going to say, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Jesus is going to take this line of thought and he's going to jump a bridge that no one else can jump. And he's going to call on us to love the ones who hate us. Now this isn't pie in the sky, by and by kind of stuff. This isn't esoteric, mystical. This is really where his message confronts all of us. Now let me ask you today. We live in a world that is consumed with Ethnic divisions, political divisions, social divisions. Is this not a message that can bring reconciliation? To love the one who hates you? It's interesting, uh, in my studies in Israel, um, one of my professors was a a Christian, but he had an ultra-Orthodox, the black and white guys with the big curls and everything, uh, from Measharim, which is like one of the uh, ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods of Jerusalem. He came to him and he said, you Christians have the message to solve the problems of the Middle East. To solve the problems between Jew and Arab, Israeli, Palestinian, Jew and Jew. Because only on the lips of your Jesus do you have the command to love your enemy and the one who hates you. He said, but you're too busy fighting amongst yourself to have any voice here. So, this is more than just nice sentiment. This has incredible practicality. If I can go back to Acts 1, in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the age. So, this is kind of where Jesus is at. We also see this, though, picked up in the New Testament. Paul is going to say both in Galatians and in Romans that the statement, love your neighbor as yourself, is going to be the sum total of the entire law. James is going to call it the royal law, the ultimate summation of what it is that God wants for us. Now, this trend of trying to boil everything down into kind of one or two base statements goes all the way back to the prophet Micah. Micah is going to say, and it's a very familiar verse. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We find a sage by the name of Shimon the Just, who lived about 250 years before Jesus. And he's an interesting fellow because he was actually a priest. And he's going to say the world stands on three things. On the Torah, on the temple service, and on deeds of loving kindness, which are charity. Now, what's really interesting about this is this is a priest who's actually placing the study of the Torah above the temple service. And what's important is not only the three that he outlines, but the order of the three. Because the priority is always given to the first one, then the second one, and then the third. So for Shimon, it's study of the scripture, temple service. Acts of charity. Flip over in your Bibles with, you, with me, if you would, to Matthew 6. Because I'm going to submit to you that in Matthew 6, we find the three pillars of Jesus' faith. In Matthew 6, 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. For I tell you that you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Let me pause here a second and let's define this term righteousness. In the Old Testament, words like righteous, righteousness, to make right, to do right, they all come with the same idea. And the idea is always defined relationally. Biblical rightness or righteousness, however you want to think of it, is a relational quality, okay? So it means that it's either how God acts to us, how I act to God, or how I act to other people, okay? It's something that's relationally defined. Now, what happens kind of in the history of the church is once we begin to move, from a language base that was Hebrew um, even down into the time of the New Testament to Greek being more the way people are conversing and thinking and speaking, Plato said that the term righteousness in Greek, was one of the four cardinal virtues. But if you remember your Platonic um, philosophy, you remember that Plato basically looked at the world as what is physical is just a cloudy reflection of what exists up here in what he called the world of the forms. So righteousness for Plato was not something that you possessed or did. It was something that you participated in, only fragmentary. But true righteousness existed outside yourself. Okay, you following a little bit? Because what is important for this is when we come into, to the New Testament, especially the Gospels, and ask, how did Jesus mean this term righteousness? Now, if you go to the Western Wall in Jerusalem today, you go into any synagogue, even today in the world, you're going to find people asking for something. In Hebrew, the term is tzedakah. Its literal translation is Righteousness. There's a box in every synagogue around the world that has tzedakah written on it, and what it means is charity, alms. Any time, in fact, that we find the term righteousness used in the Gospels, you can substitute the idiom almsgiving or charity, and it will be exactly what Jesus meant. We see this here in Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness. Verse 2 thus when you give alms, sound no trumpet. He's going to go on, and his next is going to be, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. And then he's going to finish up and say, and when you fast. Fasting in Jewish tradition is done for one of two reasons. Either a collective mourning, or repentance. So you can understand his fast here is talking about repentance. So how does Jesus outline his three pillars? Charity, prayer, and repentance. Now I want you to go back to your list of three a moment. How many of you in your list, your number one dealt with This relationship. Notice for Jesus, number one has to go this way. For Jesus is going to say, in effect, unless I have a relationship with you, unless I'm showing mercy to you, I don't have a relationship with God. And it doesn't matter about how I feel, how warm and fuzzy I make myself feel, but between me and God stands you. And as we've already said, for Jesus, that's not just the people I like, that even has to extend to the people that hate me. Think of Zacchaeus. Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' house, and what's Zacchaeus' statement? I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, I will repay them up to four times. What's his response? Today's salvation has come to this house. In other words, for Jesus... I've gotta be taking care of this. Now, you say, well, that's cool for Jesus, but what about his followers? Open up 1 John. John's going to say in 1 John, how is it you can say that you love God whom you have not seen, and hate your brother who you do see? Ladies and gentlemen, God's name is at stake in us, in this world. And when we talk about being witnesses, whether we're talking locally, regionally, or to the ends of the earth, his name is at stake in us. We are called upon to incarnate him into our world. And sometimes I think that when people look at us, they see a a Jesus with multiple personalities. And just in the same way that you and I if we were walking down the street and encountered somebody talking to themselves or screaming at people that were walking by, we would probably cross the other side of the street and move on. So do they. You know, I, I frequently will say, you may be able to argue with Mother Teresa's theology, but you can't argue with Mother Teresa because hers was a life lived for others. But you don't have to go to India to live a life for others. And this is where I find Jesus not only so compelling, but I find him absolutely challenging in a very real and practical way. Two thoughts. We have this story. Jesus, before he weeps over Jerusalem, he's going through Jericho and there's a blind man on the side of the road. Now, Jesus knows where he's going. He knows what's at stake. He knows basically that the axis of history is about to come crashing down on his shoulders. I don't know about you, but me, that's when I'm like, I got to get my game face on. You know, don't bother me. Let me get focused. Let me make sure I do this right. Right. You've also got a crowd around him telling him how great and how wonderful he is. And this blind man begins to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, again, my personality. I would have put my head down and just kept walking because I got other things on my mind. But notice that the one that talked about caring for that one, he stops. And I oftentimes ask myself, would the cross have had as much meaning if he had? And the one who commands us to love those who hate us, do I need to remind us all that on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive. He didn't just talk a good talk, he walked it. And you and I are the recipients of him living out that life, but it couldn't, it didn't just stop with him. His followers got the message. And they went out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they turned the the Roman Empire one of the greatest, the most wicked empires that the world has ever seen on its head. And they did it exactly the way Jesus told them to do it. It wasn't just about his person, it was about his message. Go and read the book of 1 Corinthians, the entire point of 1 Corinthians is Paul taking Leviticus 19:18 and applying it to specific problems of church discipline. The end of the book of Romans, Paul's confronting issues that are in Rome. And the biggest issue is this. I'm going to do what I have the right to do and it doesn't matter what it hurts the person that's in my community. And that's why in chapter 13 Paul's going to say all the commandments are summarized in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Some will say to me, well, Mark, but Jesus says there's two. First I've got to love God. Then I've got to love my neighbor. Can I submit to you that it's not like first and second like in a race or gold medal, silver medal? Oftentimes um, when Jewish sages found a text that was rather what they called empty. They would look for other texts, oftentimes connected by shared language, that interpreted the empty text. Leviticus 19.18, I would submit to you, is Jesus' interpretation of how we love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. Because truthfully, how do we really love God? I know we sing about it. I know we talk about it. And unfortunately, we have the medieval people to think that they've basically turned love into an emotion. But how do we love God with all our heart, soul, and strength, really? The best example I can give is this. I've got three kids. They're my world. I'm also not naive enough when I go out and I'm dealing with people, that everyone's going to like me. I want people to like me, but you know what? It doesn't happen all the time. But I also realize I'm a big guy. I can handle myself. If you don't like me, oh well. Life goes on. But you really want me to love you? Be nice to my kids. You want to scrap with me? Be mean to them. If it's thus with me, how much more so God? God. Remember, everyone's made in his image. And Jesus is going to go back to that ver, or in that verse in Matthew 5, he's going to say that God causes his Son to shine on the just and the unjust. He sends his rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. God in his mercy does not distinguish, neither can we. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you a moment. And I want you to go back to your list of the three you had. And I want you—I want you to ask yourself this question: What do I need to be doing this week to align my list with Jesus's list? Because if we're really truly going to be disciples and Christ followers. We've got to take on his worldview, not conform him to ours. So take just a moment, and then I'm going to close in prayer. What do you have to do this week to take your list and conform it to his? Father, challenge us by your spirit to be better than what we are. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hands and feet to act towards those around us. Break our hearts, Lord, with those things in our world that bring strife, Harm, and help us to do everything that we can to clear a path so that your spirit can draw near. Lord Jesus, we want to follow you in all that we say and all that we do. And Father, we ask that your name would be glorified through us in all that we say, in all that we do, for your name's sake.